I know I can't be alone in this, but have you ever done something that you immediately regretted? Several years ago when Savannah and I were first married, we were sophomores in college, we were full-time students, and we also worked at our school to help make ends meet. Well, about a month into marriage, I randomly awoke one morning with the bright idea that it was the perfect season of life to trade in my paid-off Jeep Cherokee for a shiny black Mercedes-Benz coupe that I had found on the internet. Now, the more this idea grew in my mind on that particular day, I kept justifying it to myself and my skeptical bride by saying, hey, it gets much better gas mileage than my Jeep. Well, come to find out, the car wasn't located too far from where we were living at the time, and it was just too good to pass up. And so after coercing my wife to let me make this purchase, I bought the car without even test driving it. Now, it was a beautiful car, and it was fun to drive, and it was great to own until the transmission went out a month later. (laughs) And then after that, I had to open up something that I had never opened in my life, and that was a car payment. I remember opening that bill for the first time and this sick feeling coming over me as I thought to myself, what in the world did I just do? But at least it got good gas mileage, right? Now that's what you would call buyer's remorse, right? And and that was the first time that I had ever experienced it and really the only time since. Now by brief show fans, how many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, buyer's remorse? Yeah, it's a physical and emotional condition that you go through whenever you make a regretful financial decision. Now, researchers have shown that it can lead to guilt, frustration, sleeplessness, anxiety, and a lot of fights with your brand new spouse. Now, here's what's interesting about buyer's remorse, though. You don't experience it when you buy something that doesn't cost that much, right? I mean, the more expensive something is, the more valuable the product is that you're purchasing, the greater the chance increases that you're going to feel some remorse over that purchase down the road. Now, for the next 13 weeks here at Crossroads, we're going to be going through a book in Scripture called Hebrews. Now, you need to understand that this was written during the first century to a group of Jews who had recently converted to Christianity. Now, the more they followed Jesus, the more they realized that it was going to cost them something, and it was as if these early believers felt a little bit of buyer's remorse with their faith. You see, they really didn't count the cost of following Christ. You see, they wanted grace, but they didn't want Jesus to interfere with what they were doing on Friday nights. They wanted to be saved, but they didn't want their beliefs and convictions to lead them to be ridiculed by those in the community. They wanted to be forgiven, but they didn't want to be told that they also had to forgive others who had hurt them in their past. And so these believers were seriously considering turning their backs on Jesus and returning to their prior religion. After all, Judaism was more convenient. It would have eliminated any awkward conversations with family members during the holidays. It was more culturally acceptable than to say that hope and forgiveness alone can be found at the cross, which back then was a Roman device of torture. And so, therefore, the entire point of this letter was to remind these struggling believers that Jesus was greater than the government that was confiscating their property. Jesus was bigger than the crowds that were publicly shaming them in front of their communities. And so the writer steps into their chaotic and confusing world and says, look, if you're going to turn away from Jesus, just understand that that is a decision to go away from something that you have, which is everything, and you're going to be going to nothing at all. It's a decision to go from what's greater 
to something that's lesser. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the book of Hebrews right now. And uh, it is in the back fourth of your Bibles, uh, right in between the book of Philippi, uh, Philemon and James. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a, a black Bible in the pew right in front of you. And if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, uh, it's on that table right as you walked in uh, to that room uh, before getting to your seats. Now, we're, today we're going to start out in chapter 1, verse 1. And understand that all the persecution and trials and troubles that these believers were going through led them to question God, wondering if he really was sovereign, why he couldn't be trusted the pull them through these circumstances. And the truth is, haven't we all been there before? Don't a lot of us wonder where is God in the midst of different trials we go through? And so that's kind of where these believers were at when this letter was written. And so pick up with me in chapter one, verse one. Now understand that the writer of this letter is pretty much unknown. There's a lot of dispute and uh, debates about who really wrote this letter, but it's kind of irrelevant to the discussion. Right at the beginning, this writer uh, reminds these Christians that their worship should be exclusively towards the one who is worthy of it. And so here's what he says, verse one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And so right off, the writer paints this picture of the greatness of Jesus, whom he refers to here as God's son. Now, it's easy to see throughout this book that this crowd was very familiar with the Old Testament, which is the front half of the Bible. From the beginning to the end, the author shows us just how Jesus is not only greater than Judaism, greater than the the law and Jewish customs and traditions, but how everything in the Old Testament ultimately points us to the work and person of Jesus. And that included the prophets who he alluded to here. They were highly regarded religious leaders who heard directly from God. Now notice in verse two how it states that Jesus created the universe. Now it's not too uncommon for us to believe that Jesus was a created being by God and kind of serves as the vice president of the universe who is in, who's in second command, right? I mean, some of us think that his existence really began in the manger. But you see, that's not what the Bible tells us. Christ made the universe by the sound and by the breath of his voice. He spoke it into existence. This is precisely why Jesus always demonstrated power over creation throughout his ministry, He walked on water. He calmed a violent storm from a boat. Jesus told his buddy Lazarus to come back to life, and you know what? He did. I mean, who other person in all of history possessed that kind of power? Let's continue on with our text, verse three. The Son, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, absorbing the consequences we deserve because of sin in our life, and and offering to us an escape, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which this just communicates power and authority and dominion. I want you to underline that phrase that says Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. This means that all of human history 
since the start of time, since the start of creation, has and is revolving around the person and work of Christ. Hundreds of years ago, philosophers and astronomers believed that our entire solar system revolved around planet Earth. Well, it wasn't until the Renaissance era that they discovered that all planets actually circulate around the sun. And you know what? A day is quickly approaching when all of humanity will realize that life itself did not revolve around what happened in Washington. Life itself did not revolve around what happened on a basketball court or on a football field or in the classroom. No, a day is quickly approaching when we will see with absolute clarity and certainty that it was all about the work of Jesus Christ, his sustaining power. But do you know what you and I are gonna continue to struggle with until that time comes? Giving ourselves to lesser things that just don't matter, right? I mean, never is this more obvious than the way in which we approach Jesus on a consistent basis. And so let me ask you, is Jesus your warrior king? Or is he your therapist that only hears about your problems every now and then? Is Jesus your Lord or is he your friend who gives you an occasional good advice and counsel here and there? Is Jesus your sovereign God or is he your genie that exists to give you everything that you want when you want it? You see, our view, our picture of Jesus shapes the way that we approach Jesus. Look at verse four. Things take an interesting turn here. The writer says this, so he, Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now this seems a little bit random, right? I mean, why are we now talking about angels? Well, it is likely that these Christians worshiped angels. This was probably the result of bad teaching that circulated during the first century church. Now, the next 10 verses go on to magnify the sufficiency of Christ over angels. Now, angels have been created above human beings, above us, but are in subjection to Jesus. But some in this church believe that Jesus Christ was, was only a glorified angel when he lived here on earth. But this is just another, this is just another way of saying that, that, that Christ is greater than this object of your affection, of your worship. Because the writer is saying, look, angels have never been the point. They have not been who died for us. We should not obsess over them. We should not pray to them and interpret every little event in our life as the intervention of an angel. Now, angels are of God, but when angels become the focal point of our affection and focus, what, like it was for these believers, it becomes what we are gonna call today as misguided worship. Misguided worship. Now, by definition, worship is standing in awe of what Jesus has done and is doing in our world today. But you see, somewhere along the way for this church, their worship was misplaced and misguided. And I suppose that because angels were so closely connected with God that they were deceived into believing that they were actually worshiping God. This probably wasn't something that they intended to do at the start. About two weeks ago, I was uh, talking to my dad on the phone who was walking around the mall making some last minute Christmas purchases. And he walked into a particular department store and he was looking for the men's clothing section, but for the life of him, he couldn't find it. And so as I'm talking to him on the phone, he tracked down one of the, who he thought was the closest employee to him. Now the only problem was her back was to my dad and she was standing right in the middle of the women's lingerie section. 
And so I'm telling my dad a story and he approaches this woman, taps her on the shoulder and asks her if she could direct him to the men's clothing section. Well, to my dad's utmost surprise, she turned around and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't really work here. And she was right because she was an elderly nun. (laughs) Now that's a true story. And if you're like me, you have so many questions about that. Now, my dad just wanted a little bit of direction, so he went to the person who looked as if she could give him that needed guidance. Now, her back was to my dad and give him the benefit of the doubt. She may have looked like an individual who could guide him to the men's department store, but when she turned around in that moment, it was evident to my dad that that she was not who he needed in that moment, in, in that instance. And see, that's kind of how misguided worship happens for us a little bit in our life. Now, life happens, we get distracted, we stray away from what's true, and so our natural reaction is to gravitate towards something that that maybe has the appearance of the real thing. But in the end, it's nothing but a poor substitute. And you see, my concern for many of us in this church is that we have mistaken worshiping God for worshiping something that is only from God. I'm gonna talk more about this more specific manner in just a moment, but, but you see, here's the thing. When we misguide our worship, it's about exchanging what's greater for something that's lesser. Misguided worship is about exchanging what's greater for something that's lesser. This is about removing Christ from the center and replacing it with something else that can't satisfy, fulfill, and it just leaves us frustrated and wanting more. And you know what? Most of the time, we replace it with something that is good, that is of God, and is a gift from him. But the problem is that it may be so closely associated with God that it actually immunes us to him. Now, that's why the Hebrew writer continues to say this in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Why? So that we won't drift away, he says. Underline that phrase if you're following along. This is the place where misguided worship lands us. Now, drift away was a nautical expression that that gives this picture of a boat slowly being blown away. And you see, drift happens when we exchange what's greater for something that's lesser. You see, our hearts are not wired to drift towards holiness. We do not drift towards a life of prayer. Nobody accidentally wakes up one day and obeys scripture out of delight because of what Jesus has done for us. But you see, what you and I do tend to drift towards is focusing on stuff that's just lesser. We don't happen to drift towards what's greater, Jesus. And so is it possible that some of us are a little bit out of balance and misaligned? So for the rest of our time today, I'd like to get really practical with this and talk about some ways that we commonly misguide our worship. Now, just a disclaimer up front, it might get a little tense in here for the next few moments. That's okay. Toes will get stepped on. Now, if that happens to you, after you call me a name and you tune me out for a moment, can you promise me that you will hold on to what got you the most upset and at some point later today, you take what it was that I said, you go before God and you ask him where the grain of truth was for you. You see, I speak to you today from a place of love for you. A place of love for our church and concern for, for our mission, all right? And so let's get started. Number one, here's this. <clears throat> Some of us, we approach worship as if it's an event to attend. 
We approach worship as if it's an event to attend. We often think that worship is something that we come here at church to do. And you know what? That's partly correct. We would call this corporate worship. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told to not forsake the gathering of the church. Why? Well, because we need to gather to praise what God has done and is doing today, as well as hear the word of God proclaimed. That will never change. But you you see, if that's your only view of worship, I would say that's incomplete. In scripture, there's also what's called personal worship. Now, this is a type of discipline that we're responsible for that is designed to stir our affection and focus and love for Christ. What does this look like? Well, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2 gives us a really good picture. Check out what Paul says. He writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, as a response for the grace that you've been given, offer your bodies as what? A living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. He then says, this is your true and proper worship. Now notice that phrase, living sacrifice. This is about lavishly giving ourselves to others through serving. Now in the Jewish sacrificial system, you might sacrifice a goat, a lamb, or a calf. And so for these first century readers to read that they were to sacrifice themselves? That didn't make sense. And what's he talking about? Yet what we see here is Paul challenging us to put to death our desire to make life about us and serve others. You see, worship is serving. And serving is worship. Serving reveals a generous heart of someone who truly understands the debt Jesus has paid. I mean, if you love someone, giving to him or her will just be a natural expression of that love. Now, my wife loves to serve me by giving me different gifts. This past Christmas, she gave me one of those two-wheel hoverboards. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've seen one of those? Yeah, I mean, it's an extremely dangerous toy, all right? Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't maybe recommend it, but it is a lot of fun. One of the first nights that, that I had this, we were at her parents' house over in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and I'm trying to figure out how to work this hoverboard, and so I'm kind of riding around the kitchen, and her younger brother, Sam, who also has a hoverboard, challenged me to a race. Unbeknownst to me, he also set up a camera above the microwave to film this whole thing. He's really into his GoPro, and, uh, and so I just want you to take a look at this video of me riding the GoPro for the first time. I'm wearing the white shirt, all right? Check this out. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> You laugh about it. Uh, So I think Savannah either got it for me because she loves me or she wants to kill me. Uh, But you know, when I originally asked for it a month ago, I thought it was a long shot because of how expensive they are. But you know, for the past month or so, Savannah's been saving her money and she's been working really hard because she understands that if you love somebody, then why withhold generosity, you know? And so God says, look, if you want to tell me that you love me, then do that by giving yourselves to other people through serving them. Author Bob Goff puts it like this. He says, the way we love each other when we leave the manger, it says a lot about who we found there, right? 
And so if that boy who was born in a manger, the one who created the universe, the one who existed before time, would, would grow up to say, look, I, I've come not to be served, but to serve, would that describe your life? You see, the understanding we have of the gospel is revealed by the way that we serve or the way that we don't serve. And you know what? A lot of us come here to church each and every week with an attitude that says, hey, what, what can this church offer me? That's not worship. That's consumerism. And if you're not a Christian or this is your first time, I'm not talking to you right now, okay? I'm speaking to those of us who are followers of Jesus and have been a part of Crossroads for an extended period of time. Let me remind you that you are part of a family. The sovereign creator God of the universe has entrusted to you a part of his kingdom. He has uniquely and specifically gifted you to use your personality and your abilities to build his kingdom. And you know what? Many of us here on a weekly basis do this really well. I think about Jody Reisner, who uses her administrative gifts and passion for prayer to lead others to intercede on behalf of our global partners. I think about Gary McDowell, who uses his shepherding and evangelism gifts to be a section host. Christine Gonzalez uses her gift to care for children by serving in our children's ministry. You see, these are just a few of hundreds of volunteers here who approach this very imperfect church, not with a critical spirit, but with a type of generosity that says, what can I do to make this an irresistible environment for people to bump into Jesus? You see, we have so many opportunities for you to serve. There is so much joy for you to experience when using your gifts for his mission. But do you know the one thing that is missing? The one thing that is missing is you. And so if you have been coming here for a long time and you expect everything to be done for you, if you find yourself always criticizing the way that we do things around here, we as a church love you, Jesus loves you, but perhaps a really good place for you to start today in this new year is to confess your sin and repent of your consumerism mentality. You see, the depth of our worship can be measured by our willingness to immerse ourselves in serving one another. Now take a breath. There's grace for all of us today, all right? Grace meets us at our repentance, but you know what? Grace also calls us to change habits and old behaviors. Let's keep going. The second misconception about worship is this. Some treat worship as if it's a show for entertainment. This seems like the first point, right? Well, not exactly. If the previous point was more about what personal worship looks like for us, then this is about our attitude and mentality regarding what the corporate worship experience is like here on the weekends. Our worship is misguided if we arrive here with the sole motivation of being entertained. Now, there's nothing wrong with being entertained. On the contrary, there's nothing spiritual about being miserable, all right? God the Father loves to hear his children laugh. We love humor here at Crossroads, if you can't already tell, and you know what? So did Jesus. But worship itself was never intended to be something that you just merely watch. No, worship is about experiencing God's presence and connecting with him as you declare his worth and his praise with passion. Psalm 150 provides a good framework for what worship should look like. Check out what the psalmist writes. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. That sure sounds like a concert to me, doesn't it? 
But do you know what the difference is in this passage compared to how a lot of us approach worship? Engagement is happening. Participation is taking place. All the lights, the instruments, the bells and whistles cultivate the expression in the environment so people can connect with God. Well, there's one last misconception regarding worship that we tend to misguide our affections, and it's this. That some treat worship as if it's a buffet where you can pick and choose your taste. I mean, if there's anything that's divided more churches in the past two decades, it's been worship styles. Young, old, hymns, or progressives. If we're not careful, we have a great tendency to worship a particular style over the God whom we're worshiping. And yet worship is so much more than a specific style. Now contrary to what some may believe, there is no style that is more spiritual than another. No, when we prioritize a certain style over whom we're ultimately worshiping, which I've been guilty of many different times, that's an indication that we need to remember the primary purpose of worship. And so it's actually threefold. The primary purpose of worship first is this, worship brings glory to Jesus. It's first and foremost about him and what he's done. Now secondly, worship stirs our affections for Jesus. Understand that a certain worship style is just simply a language that connects to a specific generation. And our goal here at Crossroads is to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of grace. Therefore, a certain style that we use up here on this stage must reflect that. And inevitably, it's impossible to make everybody happy, right? Now, you and I assume that the style that we love most is the style that everybody loves as well, right? Now, have you ever been to someone's home before and they want to introduce you to their dog they tell you how cute she is and how cuddly she is and, and just how that dog is the center of their universe. And so you can't wait to meet that dog. It walks out of a room and you look down and it looks like a mangled rat that's been run over by a car about five different times. I mean, it may be cute for that person, but it's not cute to you. You know what I mean? And so it is with worship styles in a way. What ministers to you may not connect with the person beside you. And so the best question that you and I can ask ourselves as we approach worship on a weekly basis is not who's going to be preaching, not what's what's worship going to look like, is it going to be the choir, is it going to be the band, how many instruments will be up on stage, will there be lights, will there be fog? None of that pales into comparison with this question, which is this, how am I preparing myself for worship? Am I intentionally eliminating distractions for the next hour or so so that I can meet with my dad, with my father? Am I intentionally creating this environment in my heart, in my soul, and in my mind so that I can hear God clearly? Again, you don't just drift into an experience with God. It requires intentionality on our part. Well, the last purpose of worship is this, and this may surprise you, that worship attracts outsiders to Jesus. It does. The clearest examples, uh, the clearest, uh, one of the clearest examples that we have of this is found in 1 Corinthians 14. The Corinthian church was growing because of all of its members and attenders kept bringing their friends to the weekend worship experience. But then Paul, who actually started this church, heard that people were speaking in tongues during the worship gathering, and it just got a little bit weird and awkward. And so look at his response in verse 23. He says this. So suppose that the whole church is meeting and everyone is speaking in tongues, 
If people come in who are outsiders or unbelievers, won't they say that you are out of your minds? In other words, won't they think that you're just a bunch of drunks getting together on the weekend? No, Paul goes on to say in this text that the worship service must be understandable to everyone present. And you know what? That included non-Christians. This doesn't mean that we shy away from the stuff that is specific to the church, theology, or hard teachings. No, not at all. Paul is just saying, look, take the time to explain it as you go along. Look for ways in the service to intentionally build bridges with those who are foreign to church. Therefore, this means that cultural features of music in 2016 should be reflected in our worship styles so that the gospel doesn't become unnecessarily foreign for people who are not saved yet. You see, we want to lower people's defenses and unclench their fists as they come into this room, as they step foot on our campus, because you know what? They're expecting for the roof to cave in on them. Jesus and Paul were masters at using humor, quoting secular poets and philosophers and even other religions of their day in an effort to establish what common ground so that they could help people understand the work of Christ on people's behalf so that they could walk away and say, yeah, I understand it a little bit more now. And that's what we want to aim to do here at Crossroads. We want to create a safe environment where you feel comfortable inviting your friends, whoever they may be. Now for this to happen, for us to turn this city upside down for the glory of God, we must maintain a posture of humility among one another that leads to flexibility because you know what? Our style and methods will continue to evolve. Churches that don't change with time They die. And sadly, there are a lot of churches out there that love their style more than they love lost people. One thing that my pastor used to always say growing up whenever our church was going through a lot of growth and and change, he'd always stand up on stage and say, you know, sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something that you love more. And the truth is, whether or not you know it, you are here today because of some individuals in the distant past who may remain nameless this side of eternity because they understood that we serve a God who honors the selfless efforts of his people who forsake their preferences for the greater mission and the greater cause. Now, three decades from now, Crossroads Christian Church will not be known for a specific program or ministry. We will not be defined by a particular staff member or how we preach or what our worship looks like. We will not be defined by anything in between. Rather, what we will be known for is the amount of times that we collectively gave up something that we loved for something that we loved more, which is Jesus and his mission to seek and save that which is lost. And I'm here to tell you, the journey is going to be worth it. And so as we kind of wrap up things today, I thought it'd be really appropriate for us to just have some maybe extended time of worship. And so the band's gonna come out here and lead us in a couple songs. And I wonder if this would just be a really good opportunity for you to express your gratitude for all that God has done for you. This would maybe be a really cool moment for you to say, God, here's 2016, here's my year. I don't know what it holds, but I am giving it to you right now. This could be a good opportunity for you to maybe reconnect with God. It's been a while, it's been months or even years since you've even thought about God or even come to church. And what would it look like for you to say, okay, God, 
Let's put our past behind us and let's start new. I'm sorry for some of the things that I've done, but here I am. And so what we're gonna do before we do that, let's all stand up. Hebrews chapter 12 actually provides a really good prescription for our misguided worship. And it's towards the end of the letter, and, and what I want us to do aloud is I want this to be the theme verse for this series, and so you might wanna memorize this verse. It's a really great verse. But let's say it aloud as a church together as we prepare our hearts and minds for worship. Here's what the writer says. Let's say it aloud together. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, our our year would be a lot better if we just learned to live that verse out a little bit more consistently, keeping our eyes on you. God, I know how many days I wake up intending to do that better than the day before and, and I just fall flat and I blow it. But God, I'm grateful that we serve a God who is patient, a God who is faithful even when we're not. And so Lord, would you just take our heart, would you take our mind, take our affections, and would you just help us to stay focused on you and you alone because you are greater and everything else is just lesser. We thank you now for for this opportunity to gather as your people, as your family. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.